Acts chapter 11 is the continuation of the story of Cornelius and Peter. We started it back in chapter 10. Chapter 10 took us two weeks, and now chapter 11, a third week. So three weeks discussing these things that we started in chapter 10. It's a lot of space to one topic. The topic was, the issue is, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, not just for Jews, not just a Jewish thing, but it has extended to the non-Jews or the Gentiles. If you missed the last couple of weeks, you can go back into our website and pull up the sermon from last week and the week before, and you can get the full introduction from chapter 10, because chapter 11 is just really a, a rehashing. Peter now explains what happened to other people. He has to explain himself about why he went in and did the things he did, because he crossed some pretty significant cultural boundaries. And you know how it is when an event happens or an invention comes along that's a game changer. Uh, As I did some research on this and I sent out the teaser for Sunday morning, I mentioned the invention of the wheel, which we take for granted. But that's a life-changing invention for the people who were living at that time. Makes work a lot easier. It just changes things. The invention of the automobile. That was a game changer, a life changer. You don't come back from that. Like, think about now operating in the world we live in without an automobile. It's very difficult where we live. We know that as far as events go, September 11th changed everything. We all had a sense that now that this has happened, life can never go back to being the way it was. And we all had that sense that morning when we watched that this is life-changing. Well, the events we read about in chapter 10 between Cornelius, this centurion, this non-Jewish centurion, and Peter, this apostle, the events that happened between them were life-changing and game-changing. Things would never be able to be the same again as now the message, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ has extended past the Jews to the Gentiles, not because the Gentiles would become Jews and go through all those rituals to become Jewish and then they could be saved. They could get saved without changing anything to get saved. They didn't have to do anything or become anything to be saved. They could be saved just as they were. And that's radical. And you and I are thankful for that. This is spread to us, to most of us here, are thankful that this has been available. So chapter 10 outlines all those things. The big takeaway was in chapter 10, verse 34, Peter says to Cornelius, hey, this is what I learned. I learned that with God, there is no partiality. There is no favoritism. And if you grew up in a family where your parents played favorites and maybe you were not the favorite and that's why you're here at church today, you're still recovering from that nonsense. We read about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and Joseph was this favored son. But as hard in a family when there's that one child, your older brother or your younger sister, and they were the mom and dad's favorite and they got all the good stuff and you felt like you were always getting in trouble and just marginalized in your family. That's what it would feel like if God played favorites, that there were certain people that God seems to like better than others, and he gives a little bit of extra attention or treats them differently than he does other people. See, human beings, we do that. We treat certain people differently than other people, and that's based oftentimes on their economy, their economic status, their color of their skin, their ethnic origin, and sometimes we don't even realize it, but we have these biases. God wants you and I to know that with him, none of those biases exist. There's nothing that we could do that would make him want to treat us any more special than someone else. He can't be influenced or manipulated to treat some people better than others. And so Peter has learned this 
Cornelius has learned this. God has poured out His Spirit on these Gentiles, these people that had gathered together to hear Peter preach. And it is radical. Six guys came with Peter and they all observed it and they all scratched their head and said, would you look at that? God has poured out His Spirit on people that aren't Jewish. And we pick up there in chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. So word had traveled. We don't know how much time had passed, but word had traveled back to Jerusalem about what had happened up there in Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime, where Cornelius was, where Peter met his family. Word travels back, and they're not too happy about it, are they? These group of people, we have to define who they are. This group of people called those of the circumcision. Those of the circumcision. Sounds like an interesting group of people. They are those Jews who still held on tightly to the religious traditions of Judaism. You know, circumcision and keeping the law, and they were very much uh, religious traditionalists, you could say. And they were very serious about some of, not just what the Word of God said, but what their traditions held. And their traditions said, hey, we Jews, we don't cross this boundary with Gentiles. We certainly don't eat with them because they don't eat the same things we eat. We eat what God tells us. They eat whatever they want. And there's therefore, we can't have fellowship with them. And Peter crossed the line. And interestingly, it says that uh, he, they heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. So they hear... Via someone put it on Facebook or someone tweeted it. Hey, Gentiles are receiving the word of God. And they seem to miss that. They don't seem to care about that. All they want to know about is how dare Peter break this tradition. I do think it's cool, by the way, that it says the Gentiles had also received the word of God. It wasn't just that they heard Peter's preaching. It wasn't just that they heard a Bible study. A lot of people hear a Bible study and it doesn't change them. You can have Bible verses memorized. You can know the order of all the books of the Bible and repeat them in order perfectly. And none of that stuff will change your life. What changes your life is when you receive the Word of God. See, they didn't just hear it, they received it, they accepted it, they took it into themselves, they made it part of who they were, they believed it. That's when things change for you. Not just hearing it, but believing it. And so the Gentiles receive the Word of God. Peter comes down. He meets the, with these people that he knows in Jerusalem. And they're all looking cross-eyed at him, like scowling at him. And he's like, uh, hey guys, what's up? We heard you ate with uncircumcised men. And Peter's like, well, maybe I should explain myself. Now he doesn't say that, but he does go on to explain himself. The interesting thing is, does Peter have to explain himself? I mean, this is Peter's the big kahuna, right? He's the head honcho among the apostles. He was the guy that preached the Pentecost sermon. I mean, he's the one that everybody's looking to for leadership. Now, he does this thing. He crosses this boundary, and they're all... The Bible says they contended with him, meaning that they doubted him, they judged him, and they were hostile toward him. So they're not looking real happy when he shows up. So... Verse 4 tells us that Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. Now, the word explained is interesting. It means to bring out or to expose 
or literally to, uh, not just to expose the information, but to interpret the meaning and the significance. When you come here on Sunday morning, we open up our Bibles, right? And we read each verse and we talk about what that means. And then at some places, we make an application to our lives. And we call that expository Bible teaching. There's lots of different ways to teach the Bible. There's topical Bible teaching. There's these different types of ways. We're used to what's called expository teaching. So what we do is we read it. We read the events. And I say, now, here's what this means. Here's some background. And then we say, well, what does it mean for us? Here's what it says. Here's what it means. Here's what it means for us. That's the basic understanding of expository Bible teaching. Well, that's exactly what Peter did with this group of Jews when he brought them the story of Cornelius. The word for explained it to them is the word we get the expository Bible teaching from. Same idea. He exposed it to them. Not just what happened. He tells them what happened, and he tells them what it means, and then what it means to them. So he explains it to them. Even though he probably didn't have to, he could say, hey, look, don't question me. Just, just believe it. Just accept it. But I think it's very important that he explained it to them. Because they were going, Peter, what were you thinking? What are you doing? So he says, listen, starts at the beginning. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. So for us that have been around here a couple of weeks, that's not new information. Peter is just retelling the story that we read back in chapter 10. If you're here for the first time, it may be a little confusing to you, and I'll try to give a brief statement about what is happening here. Peter says... Where this all started, look back at verse 5. Where did this all start? Peter says, I was praying. That's what happened. Peter was just simply praying. Peter prayed often. The Jews had a, a very significant habit of prayer. Now, some of them did it to be seen by others, but, you know, Peter's had a habit in his life of praying. Meanwhile, Peter doesn't know it, but Cornelius is praying. This God-fearing Gentile, he's praying. And God, through each of their prayers, brings them together and actually uses Peter to answer Cornelius' prayer. Prayer is awesome. Do I understand it? No way. I wish I could understand. I wish I could explain to you how prayer works, how we on earth somehow move God through prayer or how God somehow responds to our prayers. I don't understand that. But I know over and over again we're told to pray. And here's what I see. Peter, at his time of prayer, God gives him a vision. I doubt that's what he was praying about. I don't think Peter was praying about Gentiles being saved. I'm sure he wasn't. And I'm sure Peter had no idea Cornelius was praying. And so God uses this time in their lives to help bring them together. Have you ever been the answer to someone else's prayer? I mean, that is the coolest thing when that happens. So here's Cornelius praying. And because of Cornelius' prayer, God says, I hear you. And I'm going to answer your prayer. And what does he do? He dispatches Peter, who responds to God through prayer, to go and, and be the answer to Cornelius' prayer. to bring what, And I think that is so cool. Have you ever had that experience where you're praying? You just you say, I'm going to just spend some time with the Lord. 
because for us, we're so busy. And, and I'm guilty with you guys. Life is so busy. I got things to do and places to go. And so to take time, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour to pray and to just sit quietly with my Bible and alone with God, it's like that's hard time to get. But we have to make it happen. Because if you want to hear from God, he speaks to us oftentimes not in the screams or the shouts, but in the still small voice. The still small voice that's drowned out by the radio in your car and the TV always on at home and the computer screen always open and the YouTube videos and all the stuff that we fill our mind. And God's, I'm trying to speak to you, but I can't get through because there's all this other noise in your life. And everything, everything begins with prayer. And if you've ever had that experience where you've, you've just been sitting alone your time in prayer and all of a sudden... God puts someone on your heart like you. You haven't thought about that person in, in the last six months. And you're just praying all of a sudden this name pops in your head and you're like, whoa, that's weird. And then you pray for them or you do something. I had a situation uh, in my life, a couple of them, where just through prayer, God put someone on a heart, I sent a card, and then I get a note back that says, you will never believe what that card meant to me or what was going on in my life at the time. Or someone sends some money to somebody out of the blue, so to speak, out of the blue. Just, I feel like the Lord wants me to do this. And so for Peter, he wants to take them back. Look, guys, this didn't begin with my idea. It wasn't my idea to do this. It wasn't my idea to cross these boundaries because it was nuts for him to do that. But he assures them that this came out of deep communion with God. Because I've seen some people come up with some ideas and you go, did you pray about that? Well, not really. I can tell, because that ain't of God. I mean, that's just silly what you're thinking about. But when you sit and you spend that time with the Lord, and then he speaks to you, and you're like, oh, that's of the Lord. I think that's of the Lord. So he tells him, started in prayer. In a trance, I saw a vision. This object let down. Now, Peter would have grown up in a Jewish household, and he would have never eaten food that they considered unclean. Leviticus, the Old Testament, outlines, here are certain foods that, as a Jew, you're prohibited from eating, and foods that are prepared in certain ways, prohibited from eating them. And those are the very foods, the food they could eat and the food they couldn't eat, all come down on this blanket, and this voice tells Peter to eat it. And Peter's like, no way, I don't eat that stuff. That's what he says. Lord, you know, not so, Lord. I'm not, I've never eaten any of that stuff. So he's connecting with his audience. He's connecting with these Jews of the circumcision regarding his desire to keep the law too. He says to them, look, I'm not some kind of radical, rebellious, law-breaking Jew. I mean, I'm like you guys. You guys don't eat unclean stuff. I don't eat unclean stuff. This vision startled me as much as it's startling you when you hear about it. This was not something I planned. I tried to resist it. I said, not so, Lord. Nothing like that is ever. I've never eaten anything like that. But the voice answered him again. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And we now know because we know the rest of the story, that God was talking about people and any barriers, these food laws would be a barrier between Jew and Gentile. So God is not only dissolving these food barriers, by the way, it was Jesus that said it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean. That just goes into his stomach and is eliminated. It's what comes out of his mouth that makes him unclean. So Jesus had already dealt with this, but we're slow learners. So Peter is, is learning that this doesn't have to just do with food this has to do with people. This has to do with people God wants to reach that he is desiring to reach out to. Verse 10 says, Now this was done three times. All were drawn up again into heaven. 
At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. That's where Cornelius was. Look at verse 12. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Now, wait a second, Peter. What do you mean the Spirit told you to go with them? Now, if you've been around church long enough, you've heard all kinds of wackiness when people say, well, the Spirit told me to do this. And it ain't always the Spirit. Or it's the Spirit. It's just not the Spirit of God. I've seen all kinds of people do things that they say, well, the Spirit made me do this, and it is not the Holy Spirit. It's some kind of unholy, wacky spirit. Look, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, then the Spirit of God will lead you to do things that are very consistent with the character of Jesus Christ and with holiness, not with stupidity or sin or anything like that, because the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, what is that going to produce in you? Holiness. Right. So he says, the Spirit told me to go with them. Now, I've had very few times in my life where I'd say the Spirit of God spoke to me, you know, like walking down the street or just at a certain time. The Spirit of God speaks to me every time I open his word. But there are sometimes, like with Peter, there's a unique thing that God speaks to you I can remember again a few times where I would say, I knew that was the voice of the Lord. And Peter knew he had had that vision. These people are there. And there's this voice inside that says, Peter, go with them. And he knows it's the Lord. He knows it's the Spirit of God. For us, and maybe for you, you go, I've never heard the voice of God. I've never heard God speak to me. And I would take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes about all these, these great things that God has promised to his people. And they're revealed to us. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. You know, you know that sentence. You've quoted it many times. And we usually say it about something that we don't understand, like heaven or some other thing in the spiritual realm. We don't know. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has it come into the hearts of men. The things that God has prepared for his people. And we go, well, we'll guess. But the next verse says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. He has revealed these things to us. And Paul goes on to say, look, the natural man can't understand the things of God. If you are not saved, if the Spirit of God does not dwell in you, you're not going to understand spiritual things. You're just not going to get it because the Spirit of God has to explain these things to you. And he makes this comparison. He says, what man can know the things of a man except the Spirit of the man that is in him? Have you ever looked at someone doing something? If you've ever watched like funniest home videos or some of these YouTube videos, you look at a guy and he's doing something, go, what in the world was he thinking? Like, why in the world is he doing that? And who knows? He knows. Only he knows in himself why he chose to do that or why she chose to do that. But nobody else knows. Well, just in the same way, no one can know the things of God unless the Spirit of God dwells in them. The natural man, a person not saved, can't know these things. So Peter, a spiritual man, It's not an uncommon for him to hear from the Spirit of God. And I think that those of us in here that are saved can affirm that we hear the voice of God. Because there is something on some level, as much as we try to humanize everything in our lives, as much as we try to downplay any the miraculous and the spiritual, there is a level on which Christianity can be nothing other than supernatural and spiritual. And if you're not saved, I can't explain that to you. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. You just know that was God, and that was not. 
I mean, a lot of people don't know the difference because you don't know the Lord. If you don't know the shepherd, you don't know his voice, you're not going to be able to discern these messages that come into your life. But Peter, verse 12 says, the spirit told him to go, doubting nothing, so he went. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. We entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So now he tells it from Cornelius' side. Cornelius is in his house. An angel shows up to him when? Through prayer. We asked ourselves a couple weeks ago, what in the world was Cornelius praying about? I think it's quite possible, based on the answer to his prayer, that Cornelius was saying, look, I do these things, I do these rituals, I have this religion, this religious routine, but I don't feel like it's relieved the guilt in my life. I don't feel peace. I'm not at peace. And so God says, I'm going to answer that prayer. Peter's going to come to you, and he's going to bring to you some very important information. Words, look at that, what it says here. He's going to tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Cornelius, that's what you've been wanting. By the way, when I first started researching this, I found a lot of interesting uh, dialogue on the internet about whether or not Cornelius was saved before he was baptized with the Spirit in Acts chapter 10. I was surprised. To me, it seemed like a no-brainer, but evidently there are a lot of people that debate this and discuss this. So some say Cornelius was already saved, and then he was just filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 10. How do they know he was saved? Well, they would point to the fact that he was a devout man, one who feared God. He gave alms generously. He prayed to God always. Clearly, that sounds like someone who's saved. Maybe, maybe not. And many of you have been around long enough to know that you can do all the religious routines. And the Pharisees did. They prayed. They fasted. They gave. But all of it was motivated by their own getting attention. They wanted to get attention. They wanted to be seen. It had nothing to do with God, everything to do with them. And I'm sure Cornelius was aware of that. I'm doing all these things, but it's not filling me. I'm not feeling complete by this. So they would say, hey, Cornelius is saved because of that, but all you have to do, sometimes the Bible is the best commentary, isn't it? You don't have to ask yourself whether Cornelius was saved. The Bible tells us right here he was not. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have had to bring him words so that he could be saved. And isn't that great? We get so much information. Is anybody else like on information overload? Is it just me? I am on information overload. Statistically, we are all on information overload in our lives. We've got information, rhetoric, dialogue coming in from a thousand places. We've got all of our media sharing and Instagrams and Facebooks and tweeters and Twitters and all that stuff. I don't even know what all of it is. Inundated with information. And why I love coming to church, getting into the Word, is because these are the words that are actually beneficial to my life. All those other words, fine, information, that's, that's okay. There's some of that stuff I'd rather not know. But this is information Cornelius needed to know. Again, the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Peter wasn't going to do some kind of song and dance so that they could be saved. He wasn't going to come and put on a play, do a drama. Just simply brought them the Word of God. Jesus Christ, He lived a perfect life. He was crucified on the cross. He rose from the dead. He died for your sins. If you believe Him, 
you can be saved and have forgiveness. And it was when they said that, forgiveness, boom, they believed that. So he brings them words by which you and your household will be saved. Verse 5 says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Notice, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift, notice that, that's important, the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? What a great question Peter asked. So Peter gives it to him. He says, look, as I was speaking, Spirit of God fell upon them and I remembered the word of God. So Peter's vision, all of this, this God incidents, this God meeting was not just Peter's doing. It was not wrong. It's confirmed by God's word. Whenever you have kind of that inkling or you feel God speaking to you, it will be confirmed by God's word. And Peter says, was when that happened, as he saw them being filled with the Spirit, heard them speaking in unknown languages, he remembered what Jesus had said. And Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if you think about it, circle that word you, and what Peter realized is that word you extended beyond him and his Jewish friends that day at Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit. He realized when Jesus said you, he meant you, all people. And now he's realizing that. And that the proof of that, verse 17, he says to them, if God gave them the same gift, I love that. Don't make the argument between you and them. You have discussions with people, right? And I hope you do. You discuss all kinds of things from politics to religion to, you know, all, all kinds of different topics you discuss. Don't make the argument between you and them. I don't care. Personally, whatever we want to discuss, I don't have the need to be right. I don't have the need to prove myself. I'm probably not smarter than you, and I can't give you the argument. I don't know enough to argue it. What I can give you is, I don't know about that thing, but here's what the Bible says. What I can tell you is what God says. And all of a sudden, that fight between you and them. You know, you've had that discussion with a relative. Thanksgiving's coming up. Man, great time to talk about religion and politics around the Thanksgiving table, right? Make it really awkward. But someone picks a fight with you. They just want to get after you about something you believe, that they believe differently, and conservative or liberal or whatever. And all of a sudden, they're trying to fight with you. And I'm like, hey, I back out of that as fast as I can. I don't want to fight with you. Matter of fact, I don't speak for myself. I say, well, all I can tell you for sure is here's what God says about it. And here's why. Let's go to this chapter and verse. Here's what God says. Now you've, you've put them before God. Now they're not arguing with you. They're arguing with God. And I just sit back and watch. Watch as they try to scramble to argue with God. And that's what Peter does with these Judaizers. He lets them argue it out with God. Your issue is not with me, Peter says. Your issue is with God. If God gave them the same gift as us, then who was I that I could withstand God to forbid or to prevent God? Great question. Their jaws were probably on the floor at that point. Like, ah, good question. Because Peter is essentially saying, if you don't agree with me on this, then you are withstanding or preventing or forbidding God. I don't think I ever want to do that. But you know, people do that. In the Bible, we talk about quenching the Spirit. The Spirit of God is doing something. We talk about it with the gifts of the Spirit. 
There are people that utilize the gifts of the Spirit, but there are sections of the church that say, well, we don't let those things happen. We don't agree with those things. Well, then the Bible would say that you're quenching the Spirit of God. We are supposed to judge those things and be discerning about that stuff because people take that and go all kinds of wacky directions with it. So we should be discerning, but that doesn't mean we want to stop it from happening. Paul says those things should happen. Spiritual gifts should happen. Otherwise, we are quenching the Spirit. I don't want to be part of a church that quench, that forbids God from doing things. I mean, that's the last thing we need because we're not comfortable with it. Isn't that what, wasn't that the issue with Peter? Well, I'm not comfortable with it. At the starting of Calvary Chapel, a bunch of hippies were coming into church wearing flip-flops and covered with, with uh, suntan lotion or, or oil at that point. We, I grew up in a generation where we put oil all over our bodies. Now it's sunscreen. But yeah, that was different. That was new. Guitars, drums. That was out of the box. There was nothing in the Bible that said you couldn't use guitars and drums for worship. But to the culture, the church culture at that time, they were, no, 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 that's not of God. But you couldn't point to anything and say that's not of God. Especially when David says, worship the Lord with stringed instruments. How do you argue with that? But you see how powerful culture is. And it's so easy because of our cultural bias or because what we're comfortable with, then we say, well, God must not be comfortable with that because I'm not comfortable with it. And we make God to be like us. I want me to become more like God. I want to be open to the things he's open to, and I want to be closed to the things he's closed to. And, and if I have question about it, I want to deal with grace. Grace, grace, grace. If I'm not sure, if I can't say, thus say it the Lord, then I want to have grace for those things. If therefore God gave them the same gift, how could we withstand them? When they heard these things, they became silent. Uh-oh, Peter's waiting for the response. Is he going to get stoned to death? I imagine that was a long silence. And then they glorified God. Praise the Lord. And they said, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Ah, then God, God has granted it to the Gentiles. He'd given it to us Jews, and now he's giving that to the Gentiles. That's so important. Circle that word life. Because what we didn't have was a resurrection from the dead, right? I mean, this wasn't like all these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people are all dead and we've got to raise them to life. So what's he talking about? Repentance to life. They're already alive. Yes, physically speaking, but not spiritually speaking. The Bible makes a clear distinction. God makes a clear distinction between physical life and spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we, I, you, were dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead. Not physically, but spiritually. Remember, a dead person is generally unresponsive to external stimuli. So if you have a dead person there and you want them to sweep up the room, you tell them, hey, grab the broom, sweep up. Are they going to listen to your command? No, they're dead. They're unresponsive to external stimuli. So now if a person is spiritually dead, what does that make them? It makes them unresponsive to spiritual stimuli. God can't speak to them. Not going to be responsive to the things of God. So that was my story. Like, you can look at your life. You can look at a person's life and say, oh, on the outside, hey, everything looks good. Good job, you know, whatever. Place to live. You know, you've got, by the world standards, doing great. Successful by the world standards. But the question is, what does God see when he looks? You could be leading the most prosperous company on American soil, making six figures, you'd be making nine figures. 
I can even count that high. But what does all that matter if you're building barns and bigger barns and storing up all these things for yourself and going on fishing trips and vacations and traveling the world? What does all that matter if you're spiritually dead and you are unresponsive to the God who created you? And so for us, for them, thankful that God, by faith, granted to the Gentiles to be saved by faith, not by their works. They didn't have to become Jews first. They didn't have to get their life together. Did you notice that? They didn't have to get their life together first, and then they could come to God. God took them right where they were, and they changed the direction of their lives. Repentance means to change direction. They changed direction, and the new direction was towards spiritual life. Now, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but to the Jews only. So we turn our attention from Peter and Peter in Jerusalem talking about these things with Cornelius and the Gentiles, and now we turn our attention back to chapter 8 where there was this persecution. Remember Saul of Tarsus? Saul was wreaking havoc on the church, destroying people, tearing families apart, trying to destroy this group of people called the Way or the followers of Jesus. And so people skedaddled. That's a technical spiritual word there, skedaddled. They got out of Jerusalem because their lives were in danger. They didn't sit around and go, hey, you know, let's take the gospel to the north. They just left because their lives were in danger, and they went north. Antioch, by the way, 300 miles north of Jerusalem in what we call Syria. So they went up through Lebanon, took a boat out to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea, and some continued past Phoenicia, which is again Lebanon, up into Antioch, which is in Syria. Third most populous city or third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Very significant city, about a half a million people living in Antioch. There were 16 cities named Antioch, if that helps you any. So each of them had a little secondary note. This was Antioch in Syria. There was a hippodrome that held 80,000 people. They had chariot races. And like so many cities, it was known for its sexual and just general immorality. It had a reputation among the Roman Empire for being generally immoral. And so these people, average people like you, like me, went north. And you say, Steve, well, you're the pastor. Okay, I have this opportunity to speak publicly inside the church. But you guys all get opportunities to do what they did. And as you were traveling, as they were traveling, as you go about your daily business, the word preaching just speaks of everyday conversation. They weren't putting up their soapbox in the downtown mall and preaching a sermon. They were just talking to everyday people as they were traveling. And that's something everybody can do. They were preaching the word to no one but Jews only. So as they went, as they found Jewish people, they talked to them about Jesus. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. So others that had a Greek-speaking background so the Jews would have spoken Aramaic. But the Greeks, the whole Greek culture that had spread, they spoke a different language. They spoke Greek, so that would have been a barrier. But to these, these people who had been saved in Jerusalem, they spoke the same language, so it made an obvious connection with the people who were pertaining to the Greek culture. That's what the word Hellenist is about. These are people of a Jewish background who were living as if they weren't Jewish. They were living like they were pagans. Because they lived 300 miles from Jerusalem, They'd probably stopped keeping the feast. They probably were 
raising their kids, naming them with Greek names. They were wearing the same kind of clothes that the Greek people wore, that the pagans wore, and they even had similar types and patterns of worship. So Cornelius was a Gentile who looked like a Jew. These people were Jews who looked like Gentiles. So Antioch becomes known as the center, really, of the Gentile church. Jerusalem had a certain flavor. Antioch had a whole different flavor. They weren't bound by some of those traditions that the Jewish believers in Christ had. So they speak to these Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus to them. And verse 21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. One thing I want to point out here, notice what they were preaching to them, what they were talking to them about. They were talking about a person, Jesus Christ. That's always what it comes down to. It comes down to a person. Not about what my denomination believes or not my series of doctrines. Doctrine is important. Don't hear me say doctrine is not important. But ultimately, all that doctrine is wrapped up and embodied in a person, isn't it? All of our lives are not about doctrine. It's about Jesus. I have a person to follow, not a list of do's and don'ts in my life. And as they're preaching Jesus to them, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, it's all centers around Jesus and what he did. What he did for me, what he did for you. And it's when that kind of preaching happens, when Jesus is kept central, that's when verse 21 happens, the hand of the Lord was with them. God was giving them strength in this. You can have all kinds of gimmicks and programs for evangelism. You can have all kinds of moon bounces and community outreaches and all that stuff to get people in. But all of it's going to fail if the hand of the Lord isn't with you. And the hand of the Lord won't be with you unless you're preaching Jesus. Now, you can build a big church without God. You can build a big organization without Jesus being in charge of it. But that's not the kind of organization I want. So for them, everything came back to Jesus. Numbers of people being saved. They're turning to the Lord from their pagan worship, from their goddesses and gods of pagan pantheon. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Again, someone tweeted it. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So you remember Barnabas? Barnabas was this guy who was in Jerusalem. He's not an apostle, but he's well known by them. And when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. Remember those Jewish people? They heard about the grace of God to the Gentiles. What were they? They were mad. But here, Barnabas, what I love about him is he sees God's grace to these pagan living Jews and instead of getting angry, or instead of being upset, he's excited. Man, you should be a person who is excited when you see God at work. Does that excite? I mean, it excites me when I see God at work. So he sees the grace of God, sees these people turning from their idolatry, turning to God. And here's what he says to them. He encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Notice, he didn't add anything to what was going on. He didn't say, well, you guys are close, but you're not getting it quite right. There's some good things here, but let me straighten things out. He just said, man, Antioch is rocking. Don't you want to see that today? Don't you, wouldn't you love people to, to hear about, people in Charlottesville hear about Fluvanna? And they send out, what's going on in Fluvanna? Man, things in Fluvanna are rocking. The Lord is really moving. People are turning from their sin. People are turning to the Lord in, in great numbers they're believing all he had to say to them was hey keep going keep going 
And I think as simple as a word as that is, as simple as that sounds, can I say the same thing to you? Can I say the same encouragement to you to continue? It's always great when it starts and there's a lot of excitement. People are getting saved, a lot of baptisms happening. But it's easy to get off course, isn't it? It's easy to quit or give up or get off course. And Barnabas just says to them, hey, keep going. Continue with the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice a couple things. First of all, things are so hopping, Barnabas is overwhelmed with the amount of work he has to do. He's teaching a Bible study every morning, a Bible study every night. He's baptizing people by the, who knows, by the hundreds maybe. And he's getting exhausted. He's like, man, I need some help. Notice where he doesn't look for help. Jerusalem. He doesn't go back to Jerusalem to get the apostles to come up. He remembers this guy named Saul who got sent back eight or ten years before to his hometown of Tarsus, about a hundred miles away from Antioch there. He remembers that this guy had gone toe-to-toe with the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking and Greek-cultured Jews. He said, man, I'll bet God would use him powerfully here. So he goes and he gets Saul of Tarsus. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And the two of them, for a year, labor together, bringing in this great harvest in Antioch as all these people are getting saved. They're teaching Bible studies. I mean, I hear stories about the early days of Calvary Chapel. Back, we call them the tent days in California when Greg Laurie was preaching and Keith Green was leading worship or Chuck Smith was preaching. I mean, just these names that we hear about. Like, man, wouldn't it have been great to have been around for that revival? I think, man, it would have been great to be around for the revival in Antioch. It's really not a revival, it's a revival. Because it's just getting started. So you can't have a revival until something dies. So this is just getting kicked off, so it's a, they're having a revival in Antioch. I just made that word up. And Barnabas is encouraging people, and Saul is just laying on them the Old Testament and, and how God was already predicting these things in the Old Testament, and they're teaching a great many people. And People around are noticing. Final point, hang with me. The culture, the city is noticing what's happening. So the term Christian wasn't a self-coined term. They didn't decide, they didn't get together and have an elders meeting and say, what should we call ourselves? You know, the Jesus warriors. Yeah, I like that. I like that. God's army. Yeah, that's good too. They were called the way. They were called believers. They were called the brethren. They were called the saints. They were called a lot of different things. But the word Christian, if you could read it in the Greek, it's actually the combination of a Greek word with a Latin suffix, a Latin ending on it. It's Christianos, and that Latin suffix would be used for someone who was a slave. Their slave owner's name would be first, and then you'd add that last part to indicate that that was, and that was where your name would come from. And it meant belonging to or adhering to, and it was used of slave ownership. So if you became a slave, you'd get a new name. Your new name would be your slave owner's name with this ending on it. And so the word Christian came from a word that means slaves of Jesus, slaves of Christ, slaves of the Messiah, which is probably why the Jews wouldn't have named him that, named themselves that. Uh, So this was probably a derogatory term as they noticed that these people do whatever their Messiah tells them to do. They're just like slaves. You think that would apply today? 
I mean, we use the name Christian pretty loosely today, don't we? Well, if I'm born in America, I'm a Christian. But it has meaning. It means that we are adhering to, belonging to the Christ, Jesus. Can you call yourself Christian? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I tell you? So what that surrounding culture noticed, what was different about those people, so much so that they had to give them a group name, was these people do whatever their Messiah tells them to do. And so we'll call them Christian. They're slaves of that guy, and they were familiar with that. And the word Christian is still, I think still for you and I, when someone asks you, are you saved? You say, well, I go to Calvary Chapel. Well, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. Our whole identity is not belonging to a denomination or belonging to this group. Our identity is in belonging to a person, belonging to Jesus Christ. Can you say that? Is that your identity? I belong to Jesus. I'm adhering to Jesus. That's what you should be able to say. Amen? Amen.